And the facts is this, boys. There's three sides to every story. There's my side, your side, and the truth. Kaya, Wanju, hello, welcome to another episode of The Curb. I'm Andrew F. Pierce, and this is a podcast where I bring you in-depth interviews with filmmakers, creatives, and curators of culture. This podcast is recorded in Bulu, Western Australia, sovereignty never ceded. Carissa Lee is a Noongar actor and writer whose work spans from critical analysis to theatre to the new ABC Kids series, Planet Lulin, where she plays Principal Cruz. Carissa's critical work has appeared in publications like Kill Your Darlings, Indigenous X and Witness Performance, where her writing has examined culture and the arts through an Indigenous lens. In her must-read piece on Kill Your Darlings, How Acting Saved My Life, she talks about the complexity that comes with navigating class barriers both off and on stage. In the following interview, I ask Carissa about her journey into acting and how her writing has informed her work as an actor. I'm quite lucky with the array of people I get to interview and talk about their work with, but this chat with Carissa was a particularly enjoyable one given the way that we discuss her work. And ultimately, we ask the question about what national cultural identity really is. As we yarn about Carissa's work, the conversation sways into talking about identity and the expectations to become a spokesperson for your community, especially as organisations or the arts community and society as a whole pushes towards greater diversity, in inverted commas, in their workplaces. My concept of, of diversity is vastly different from the singular mindset that much of society has of diversity. I'm a disabled writer and have been open about how I live with a disability in my workplace. But it's important to note my disability is non-visible and as such I can't speak for the entirety of the disabled community when it comes to talking about what our lives are like. My life is vastly different from those who live with visible disabilities yet because I'm part of that community I'm also expected to talk on behalf of all disabled people. And this is part of the conversation that arises between myself and Carissa when we touch on, on the societal expectations that come with that push towards diversity. Elsewhere, Carissa talks about what having a supportive teacher meant to her growing up. And additionally, what the manner that regional accents were massaged out of actors during training. Also, she talks about the work of Andrew Bovell, and particularly his play Holy Day, which played a major role in Carissa's work as an actor. And, of course, we remember Joy, and we talk about the kids' show Planet Lulin, which is an absolute delight, and sees actors like Lisa McCune dressing up in weird and wacky costumes and simply having the best time. It looks like a free and enjoying space. It's also the kind of show I wish I had growing up. I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Carissa as much as I enjoyed running it. A link to some of Carissa's writing in the show notes, in particular her piece from Kill Your Darlings, as well as her piece titled Nostalgia for a Better Future. To find out more about Carissa's work, follow her on Instagram with the username underscore Carissa Lee or on Twitter at Carissa Lee G. I'll make sure to link both of those in the show notes. Additionally, if you enjoy what we do here on The Curb, make sure to head over to patreon.com forward slash The Curb AU, where you can keep the site independent from as little as $1 a month. Thanks for listening, and now here is Carissa Lee. So I wanted to start by talking about how your journey into acting began, where was that spark to 
say this is what I want to do going forward? Uh, well, I think at uh, high school, really, my drama teacher, John Crouch, he was kind of one of the only teachers that didn't think I was a complete feral. I mean, in in defense of the other teachers, I was a bit of a feral, but um, but yeah, he he graduated from Flinders Drama Centre in Adelaide, and he always talked about how amazing it was and what it was like to graduate from there. So yeah, he kind of sort of planted that in my mind quite early on, and then I decided to, on a whim, move to Adelaide and audition for Drama Centre and managed to get in the first time, which was really lucky, and yeah, just kind of went from there. During that time as well, you did a bit of research into or study in psychology and things like that as well? I did. Can you talk about, yeah, was that like a, I know what it's been like, what it's like kind of at the end of high school where you think, I don't know what I'm going to do, I may as well just do this. Was that kind of the mindset that you had at the time of? Pretty much, yeah. I was, yeah, like at the end of high school, I was kind of thinking, I think in a way I'd sort of not really considered acting as a feasible thing you know living in a small town it's not necessarily something that's achievable so yeah and I was reading a lot of crime novels about like forensic psychologists and stuff I think that was around that time when CSI was really taking off and that kind of stuff and I thought yeah I could totally just be like a a psychologist and whatever so I did that I studied that via um, like open universities or something like that for about a year and then I did actually have the intention to try and defer that to a university in Adelaide. But instead I decided to audition for Drama Centre and I'm very glad I did because <laughs> I don't think I would have been a very good psychologist at all. <laughs> is, is there anything from that study time that you've kind of held on to that you've been able to use as a, informing your, your work as an actor? Uh, well, first year psych, like the limited amount that I did, seemed to be more of a continuation of year 12 psych because I did that when I was at high school. Um, it was, you know, just talking about the Freud, like classical conditioning and operant conditioning stuff and looking at how, you know, different stages of uh, like childhood and infancy can inform who you are as a person, which is really interesting. So now when I see babies mm. do stuff, I'm just like, mm, okay. <laughs> but I don't know if it's necessarily <laughs> accurate. But, um, but yeah, like there was definitely look at uh, – stuff like body dysmorphia and how, you know, at that time gender diversity wasn't something that was being explored. So they were looking at very binary aspects of male versus female perceptions of ideal body and that kind of stuff. So that was something that I explored a little bit in, you know, during that study, which was very interesting. Um, I don't know if necessarily much of it had carryover (laughs) into the acting, but, yeah, I end up doing lots of research with each role anyway, so... Which is the way, as as is expected, I guess, from being an actor, you've got to do all that research. I'm curious then, uh, as we're talking about the foundations, was there any actors or performances or anything that kind of stuck with you that said, this is the kind of thing that I want to do going up? Ooh, uh, I think, yeah, I think I was talking to a friend about this the other day. I think, honestly, the first actor that I was really, really impressed with and wanted to be like was Michelle Pfeiffer, like seeing how she was so versatile in her roles and was able to sort of jump into different kind of characters like one film should be you know the jaded wife and the other one should be like you know literally someone who turns into a bird and she's this mysterious figure it's just very cool I really loved her work and Christina Ritchie as well is someone that I really admired and wanted to do the really gothy kind of edgy stuff as well so they were definitely people that I admired 
I mean, that versatility, as you're saying, they're both extremely versatile, but the, the array to go from the darkness and the lightness is, it's, I imagine it's everything that an actor wants. Um, but if we can kind of transition into talking about your work as a writer as well, as I mentioned, you've done a lot of writing about uh, theatre and, and discussing what Australian culture is. And I'm curious about where that journey from deciding to be an actor kind of melded into writing yeah, I think, you know, as it's, you know, as most actors will tell you, if you're working as an actor in Australia, you generally have to have a second job to survive. And I was lucky that I was able to get onto Witness Performance, which was an amazing platform led by Alison Croggan and Rob Reed. They are critics and theatre makers and poets and lecturers and that kind of stuff. So they were able to bring a whole new sort of mode of analysis to reviews and that kind of stuff and, and looking at how we approach theatre and performance in general. I think, yeah, I decided to do my PhD because there were things that I was noticing in some of the jobs that I had done where there was this weird intersection of things that were lacking with regards to safety protocols. <laughs> like um, if you're not only a person of colour but also a woman or someone who might be, you know, disabled or queer you know, any kind of diversity, there wasn't always safe practices to ensure that your experience was as streamlined and seamless as everybody else. So that was why I wanted to kind of jump into the PhD stuff and writing for Witness Performance, uh, that was huge for my development as a writer and it was just really amazing and I think definitely helped me get through my PhD for sure. I imagine having a supported team there as well at Witness Performance as editors. How important was that for you as a writer? Oh, honestly, Alison is the most amazing editor I've ever worked with. I mean, no shade to other editors I've worked with, but, like, I mean, yeah, she's just, she made me think and challenge the way I was thinking in such a way. She actually introduced me to so many more texts about feminism, intersectional feminism in particular, and that got me thinking about that focus in my thesis as well. So, yeah, that was hugely helpful. It was, yeah, really, really amazing. I think I was a bit spoiled getting edited by her, to be honest, because now it's just kind of like everyone else is like, ah, yeah, you're good, I guess. <laughs> but it's good to have those kinds of people who are supporting you and, and recognising your skills and talent you know, and allowing you the space to explore who you are as well. Uh, and I'm curious if that kind of freedom has informed how you work as an actor and what kind of uh, aspects of your writing has informed how you build your characters and inform your characters and research your characters. Yeah, I, definitely. I, I've always been a massive research nerd. So anytime I am approaching an audition or a role, I'm basically burying myself in research and doing, you know, the most, probably for no reason at all, but it's, it, I find it really helpful as a foundation to work from. And the writing stuff and learning how to actually become a better researcher through my candidature as well as working with Witness, I think, was really, really important because it made me a better researcher for, for roles as well. It is definitely something that has informed how I work a lot better. With the cultural safety stuff too that my PhD kind of focuses on, I it's tricky because it's something that I really sort of hit home is the importance of the separation of roles because a lot of First Nations actors in particular are often expected to also be cultural consultants while they're working as actors and I don't think that always works. Obviously it's you know that's up to the each actor and how they feel about it respectively but 
sometimes, and I found that for me as an actor, I can't do both. It's really, really difficult to kind of jump between one mode and the other. I need to have that separation and that time to do. Like, I can do both, but not at the same time. It just, yeah, it needs to definitely be very separate. So, yeah, that's it's an interesting thing I discovered while doing some research. <laughs> I At my work, I work at a, a government agency, and one of the things that we talk about a lot is the realisation and recognition of lived experience. Mm. And with lived experience as well comes the expectation that the people who have lived experience, whether you are First Nations, you know, LGBTIQA or disabled, like I'm disabled, and so then people come to me and they go, well, tell me about this. Mm. And it's like, well, my disabled experience doesn't match with everybody else's. You know, I'm, I appear physically abled, but I don't use uh, walking aids or anything like that. So therefore, you know, my experience is not going to be the same. And yet there is almost this understanding that just because you are part of that community, you speak for the community as a whole, which is so frustrating. Do you find... <laughs> I'm sure you probably get that. Oh, yeah, for sure. I've got a question for you, though. I hope that's okay to ask. Um, do you find, like, do you find, like, people also ask you why you know, people who are not disabled are discriminatory against you? Because I f that's something that really makes me puzzled is when people are asking people of colour or other people who are on the receiving end of discrimination why people discriminate against them. It's like, I don't know. I'm not doing it. I just know that it's happening to me. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, that happens. And it's the same with the – there are a few trans employees at work as well. And I, I feel really, really sorry for them because they get asked that all the time and they get asked well, why why are people so angry yeah, towards like, trans people, people I don't hate like trans you. people and it's like <sighs> yeah yeah and it's like they don't realize that that kind of questioning while it might be well-meaning is also triggering yeah. as well and it's that the onus of putting that discussion on the person who is part of the community which i think is is critically unfair mm. uh, but I imagine probably in a theatre and creative space it's even more difficult because there is that need for diversity that the need for hearing these stories but mm. it's also driven by a little bit of ignorance as well well not a little bit yeah <laughs> I think you know there's always good intentions there because people are wanting to make sure that they're you know doing the right thing and making sure processes are good and they're sort of checking in checking in is nice but yeah having that whole expecting to speak on behalf of a whole race thing is a lot of pressure for anyone let alone someone who's the only person of that diversity in the room it's it's a lot of pressure and i think that um it, yeah it needs to i think one way to solve the problem is to just have more diverse people in the room and to also make sure that things aren't being othered it you know just experience people as humans and respect cultural specificity and that kind of stuff I think is a really good way to address that. It's a good kind of transition. I want to, this is probably a bit strange for you, but I want to read an opening line from one of your pieces, oh, which is nostalgia for a better future. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, cool. But in the reading, I found it quite, quite beautiful. And this is, it, it feels very apt for what we're talking about. And you write, one of my favorite words is sonder, which means the realization that each random passerby is living a life as vivid and complex as your own. It signals the overwhelming consciousness that we're not the only ones with a starring role in our own narratives. I thought that was really beautiful. And that kind of talks about what we're already talking about. But I'm curious if you can talk about how that concept has informed your creative journey and also how you deal with people who come to you and say speak for your entire community <laughs> um 
Yeah, I actually, yeah, I just really love other people's stories. I think that's that's a mob thing too. Is that we we yarn. We love to have that sort of reciprocity and and exchange and being able to just sort of yeah have that sharing with people. And I think it's really important to be able to educate yourself through other people's experiences. And I think that's something that I've always really loved is being able to just learn from everyone and have a chance to experience other people's lives. And it's definitely informed acting stuff as well because, you know, I've played roles where there have been characters that I do not like at all. But when you're in that moment of having to portray them, you can't let your feelings get in the way of that. You have to approach them as a human and, and see their motivations and all that kind of stuff. So it's very interesting to delve into that and see how other people think. And it can be really uncomfortable, but I think sometimes there's a thing that academics refer to as the discomfort zone, and that's usually where learning happens. I mean, that's something that happens in education in general, I think, is that moment of discomfort where you're just kind of having to stretch yourself a bit further. Um, and I find that, inter- that, that, that you know, discomfort zone is quite interesting as well because as you're doing research, as you're you know, writing your PhD, you have to become comfortable with the discomfort. Mm. You have to find that harmony there, which has got to be really difficult. How did you, in, in the initial steps, how did you find that kind of middle ground between the discomfort and the comfort of learning and researching? I think for me, there's the imposter syndrome thing that I think a lot of people have in general, but also particularly marginalised people and particularly people at that intersection of marginalization if you're like for me because I'm you know a first nations person who's also a woman and also queer there's this kind of weird discrimination from so many different angles that you that kind of gets put on you at every step of your life working in you know certain fields you do get people who treat you different there's like ageism that happens and I think that contributes to a kind of imposter syndrome in a way that sort of you have to battle you have to recognize when you're actually at a point of discomfort because you're feeling like you shouldn't do it or if you're feeling a point of discomfort because you're learning and you're having to actually grow past this weird gatekeepy barrier that other people have sort of put in place and I think that was a huge part of my learning journey as well was because in high school I was and primary school a bit as well, I was treated a lot like I was dumb and I was treated like I was never going to be anything. And after a while, you do start to believe it. But, you know, thankfully for me, spite is a really good motivator. So I I think that kind of drove me through a little bit. So usually people tell me I can't do something. It means I'm probably going to do it. Um, but, yeah, I think that for me was the biggest challenge was recognizing where the discomfort zone of learning was and where the discomfort zone, well, not even the discomfort zone, just the, the discomfort of, of just having to overcome, I guess, conditioning or having to override what you've been told throughout your whole life that you can't do something. And so I think that, yeah, for me was a really big sort of barrier there. In one of your other pieces of all you talk about, one of the teachers trying to kind of push the the twang out of your voice yeah yeah. and I'm curious if you've been able to kind of navigate your path back to that that kind of where you were I think I don't know like when I was when I was growing up because we grew up in a small country town where the twang there is very evident so I'm honestly not sad that I lost it (laughs) I 
think I, I still have a like a weird hybrid accent a lot of the time because I've got yeah we had elocution drilled into us at acting school and we were sort of there was this pursuit of neutral voice and neutral body which is something academics are now starting to realize like people working in that sort of theater field are work are realizing that is actually a bit of a disservice to some actors because our accents are what make us unique and are potentially good marketing things for when people are looking at us for roles and they end up asking us to do accents when we do voiceovers and stuff anyway so I mean you know having the option to be neutral I guess with your accent is good but yeah it people are realizing now more and more that you know cultural accents are really interesting and they're really fun and it's you know you should embrace them it's it's an extension of someone's identity so for me losing that accent I think was probably a good thing because yeah when I go back to that hometown and I hear how some of those fellas talk, it's just like, okay, it's a very white bogan accent. So I think I've got more of a, yeah, just a kind of neutral, but I do slip into mob accent a little bit, particularly if I've been hanging with mob for a bit. So I, I think it's okay. Yeah. But it is weird having that kind of strung out of you. Because I think, I mean, that's the thing is like, it's, it's what makes us Australian and you know, that the Australian accent, some people cringe at it, some people love it. I obviously yeah. uh, love it myself, but it's, you know, when you hear it out of context, mm. sometimes it can be a bit, <laughs> yeah. you know, oh, do we really sound like yeah. that? Yeah. I shouldn't, like, I'm not giving any shade to anybody who sounds super rural, but yeah, it, um, you can definitely hear the difference. It's just nice to have the option to turn it on and off, I think. But Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think as well, too, there is this... um something I feel like I should indicate as well. This idea of Australian is something that a lot of First Nations people aren't particularly keen on is um, because Australia as a concept, as a, you know, hybridised identity has become interesting. And I think that removing oneself from the idea of an Australian identity is something that a lot of mob are navigating at the moment and experimenting like what does that mean to not actually be Australian to not be considered Australian and I think that's yeah it's a really interesting thing that's happening at the moment. I, I completely agree I one of the projects I've been working on I'm writing a book at the moment about Australian films and it's that that exact question is what I've been asking Australian filmmakers how they explore Australian identity on screen what it actually means to actually explore it and it's comforting to hear that there is this, there is a sense of rejecting what Australian, what being Australian actually means because we're in such a fluid state right mm. now and uh, we should be. And I feel like there is a chance to reassert Australianness, whatever that actually means. We don't know, but it's, again, it's up to each person to decide. Yeah. Not for anybody to say, this is exactly what it is. You have to follow this. There's been, it's been really exciting seeing more of a, and I, like a unique identity in, in some of the like film and TV that's happening at the moment because you're seeing stuff that doesn't feel like it's trying to imitate or adhere to a template put in place by like the UK film industry or the US film industry. Stuff like Deadlock and The Clearing like are examples I'm thinking of that are, are just so it, – it's so Australian, like it's so unique and it's got – that feel like that sort of weird Australian foreboding and I know there's just like the landscape is a character in and of itself and it's it's really nice to see more of that because that's something that I explored in my thesis a little bit is this idea of Australia having to search for its own identity because you know we were essentially you know to steal a quote from Andrew Bavell, England's sewer we were 
you know, everyone was getting shipped here when they couldn't be in the UK. And it's really interesting going, okay, what does that mean for us? Does that mean we need to be like the UK or are we going to be more like the US or like what, what, how does this go? And it does feel like Australia has had a weird time grappling with its own identity and what that means. And if it needs to be an extension of something else or something entirely different and how do you reconcile that with people who are here to begin with and how do you coexist in that way? And it's, yeah, it's very interesting and a bit turbulent, but yeah, it's, it's something that I think in the film and, and like theatre industry, I'm seeing it's nice letting an identity just kind of happen and letting it be what it is. It's just kind of nice rather than trying to be something else. I agree. Which it's nice. You mentioned Andrew as well as a writer. He is one of our, our great writers and you in your kill your darlings piece you mentioned juggling the cultural load of australian texts and i'm curious if you can explore that you've kind of already touched on that but there is that that cultural balance of what's actually on the page and what the the script is about Mm. or what the text is about and what actually you bring as an actor and as a performer your own life experience your own cultural experience as well can you talk about juggling that complexity there really interesting i mean with uh like andrew vavell in particular because i i was lucky enough to do his play holy day uh like a couple times and the role that i played was a you know a young indigenous woman and you know not all not all mob love this play which is fair because it does show a pocket of time in history where you know first nations people were trying to coexist with these invaders and as a result, these power imbalances were being presented in the most horrific ways through mistreatment of women and children and men. And it just, it it was a very tricky thing to have to write about. And he did it under the cons- um, consultation of Ghana elders, which was really interesting. But I think, yeah, in a way, when I approach a text, like with Holy Day, for example, I think the best way to approach it is to know how it feels and to know when something is kind of crossing a line and you need to to know that moment because like that discomfort zone that I was talking about with learning there is definitely a discomfort zone in acting like there's a moment where you have to push past your comfort zone and that's because you're you know you're playing someone who's not you and you wouldn't do this but at the same time there is a moment of knowing when something is not comfortable and some when something is not safe and so having that kind of radar is really important and being able to know the difference. And I think, you know, I'm really lucky that I have mob that I can yarn with or, you know, people I can talk to and just sort of check in and say, hey, look, this felt like this. What do you reckon? And it just, you kind of get a sense. And if you're working with a really good director, a lot of the time you can just sort of communicate that with them and you work through those moments in a safer way. And I think I've been pretty lucky in that respect for the most part with a lot of the projects that I do. But sometimes when I approach text, I mean, some people use their experiences as sort of the, like the meat on the bones for the whole role. Whereas I will start there and remember like the feelings and, you know, the associations, but then use that to grow the character's journey rather than staying in mine. Because I think using my stuff and, you know, my trauma or whatever as a way to solely inform a character for me is not very good. I think it, it's a bit damaging and it's a, it's not it's not sustainable, particularly if you're doing a long season of something. So, yeah, I just use it as a point to grow from 
rather than using it as the whole thing. But actors, like, they, they approach stuff differently. Some people just use their life and use their experiences, and if they're able to do that for a long time, that's a hell of a skill. But, yeah, I need to use it as a point to grow from rather than the whole thing. I'm curious, then, when you wrap up a season of a show or however many performances you do, how do you detach from the character and the performance that you've played? Well, <laughs> um, I use playlists as a lot for characters and I, you know, if I'm about to, if I'm doing like a warm up or, you know, heading in to work and, you know, I'll be listening to that music to try and get in the role and sometimes, you know, think of the music when I'm needing to access a thing. So I get rid of that playlist, <laughs> that helps, um, and then I start trying to do really fun things. Like if it's a really heavy character, I'll just like get rid of all the stuff that I did that research-wise and just try and, yeah, just try and do something completely different or do something nice or, yeah, just try and get back to socialising with people and, and not being – because, yeah, the researchy side of things is a very, very isolating experience. Like I do sort of go off and do my own thing and just kind of – hide in there for a bit so I think yeah making sure I'm going back out in the world and doing healthy things and yeah getting outside I think is a really important part of that because yeah you do stuff does get a bit sticky like it, you you start dreaming in character and weird things happen if you get too buried in it so yeah it's good to have a bit of separation after I know what that's like because you like especially if you get so involved in what you're researching and what you're investigating and suddenly it's 2 a.m. and you're like, oh, hang on a yeah. second. <laughs> it's so, like, if you go down a rabbit hole of so many things and then you're just like, oh, God, what have I been doing this last six hours? <laughs> but then you also almost want to info dump on somebody else as well, and that's probably where the performances come in for That's your kind of info dump. Yeah. And I'm curious then, the difference for performing in front of a live audience versus performing for camera, how do you navigate the difference between the two? Because imagine having a live performance, you've got that immediate feedback, whereas camera, it's like you've got the director's feedback, which is good, but not the audience's. Yeah, it's and also the repetition of um, the camera stuff is interesting too. It, it's kind of nice because you get a chance to play and have a go at trying different things and, you know, they can figure out what works the best, which is nice. But, yeah, I think... Yeah, having that immediate feedback, being live with someone, I think it still feels a bit like that when you're on a set too, is that you're still very much live with people in the space. It's just different for me. Like it's almost an inverse on set because when you're on stage, everyone's there with you and you're going through with it together and you're all you're very present and you're kind of going on this journey together and you're sharing in this feeling. Whereas on set, it feels almost like they're giving you a safe space where you don't have to share that and you are having this moment and sort of doing your own thing and it's and you're still very present with your other actors, which is really cool, but it's like a little pocket. It's like a little safe space where you get to kind of do that in, which is a nice different kind of freedom. And, yeah, it's really interesting to play with both. And the physicality between, uh, you know, on camera and uh, is so different too. That was interesting to play with as well which is a good navigation to talking about Planet Lulin. And I'm curious if you can talk about how you came on board with this this really wonderful and joyous show. It's the kind of show which I wish I had as a kid because it's so fun. Uh, and the kooky characters as well are really enjoyable too. But how did you come on board? Yeah, um, well, I was asked to come on board, like, yeah, sometime 
last year. I can't quite remember. I was in the middle of another show, and so I was just like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. That sounds fun. Um, so this is really nice and fun and not requiring any really, you know, late-night morbid research at all. <laughs> it was really great. It Yeah, that was kind of how I, I was just asked to come on board for that, which I was very lucky to get to do, and I'm really happy that I got to be a part of it. I think, like, the only kind of research I did for it was looking at stuff like Abbott Elementary, like Quinta Brunson's character in Abbott Elementary, I think was a big, big sort of inspiration for how I played Principal Cruz. And I've made a little playlist for her as well. <laughs> it's very like daggy 90s music and hip hop. And she's, she's a big dog. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. She is, a, you know, quite a supportive character as well. I'm curious if, you know, you're talking about Quinta Brunson, but also I'm curious if you're acting teacher from high school uh john crouch was he an inspiration as well for you as as his character no i mean yeah crouchy unfortunately you know rest in peace he's passed away um he was i mean he was fun but he was he was tough like he he made your work and it was and i think that's why i wanted to become an actor is because he really made your work he you had to like earn compliments he was just such a an amazing person to work with and yeah he I couldn't have played the the principal like him because I probably would have not been very well received because <laughs> yeah he was <laughs> he was a tough guy <laughs> yeah lovely though I imagine that kind of uh not strictness but that that toughness for kids is probably really important growing up how how important was it for you as like having somebody who was very harsh and saying this is how I feel things should be. I think he talked to me like I was an equal. I think that was the thing. Like it, it wasn't even about him being strict or him being lenient. It was about him talking to me like I was a grown up. And he, he kind of did that with all the students. I think he had this, he wasn't going to muck around and, you know, try and be, you know, uh, gentle and go, Oh, maybe this, or maybe that, or, or have that kind of barrier. If anything, you could talk to him about anything. Like I would talk to him about life stuff and whatever, when we weren't sort of in class, but but then when we were in class, it was like, you know, we're not mucking around, we're doing work here. And he was treating it like a rehearsal space. He was treating it like an actual production, which I think was really, really good experience for when I went to uni because otherwise that would have been a huge gear change because the way, you know, other drama teachers were approaching text and that kind of stuff was a bit more gentle and a bit more, oh, we're learning here, whereas he was approaching it like it was a proper rehearsal room. So I think that that was really important for my development just before I jumped into drama center which was in the city and I had only ever grown up in a small town and had never experienced other teachers like this so yeah I think it was really important in that way. That's good I mean it's also talking about Planet Luland it's one of the things which I find really nice about it is that the adults are on the same level as the kids you know there's no distinction between the two they're everybody's silly everybody's having fun uh, and I'm curious if you can talk about that kind of level of absurdity and, and joy that you get to play in that and how important it was to have that for that kind of uh, synergy between the two. It was really fun. Like, honestly, the kids set the tone for the whole thing. They they always, uh, you know, kids have energy all day somehow by some miracle, which I don't remember having. And, you know, us adults are just kind of just sort of, oh, okay, and we just kind of get, you know, carried away in it, which is really, really lovely. I think it was really nice because we all were encouraged to play and getting to work with such awesome directors who are also very open to playing and then just 
finding the joy in the moments and just having fun with it, I think was really, really good. And it was definitely a, a tone that was on set the whole time. There's just this beautiful playing and then you know with stuff that involved stuff like um like green screens and that it's like okay this is here and we have to imagine this is here and it was so much like being a kid it's like yes but this is this and these are the rules and this is why this happens and it was very cool and I really like I really enjoyed that I think that was what added to it is the silliness and the craziness of the story I think meant that we could play and it was just really really lovely I admit when I first turned it on I didn't realize that Lisa McCune was in it and then when she appears and she's got all the things hanging up there, <laughs> yeah. it's like she's allowed to have some fun yeah. like it's nice to see these you know actors who you so often you know think that are going to be serious and then there's just like ah wow this is joyful yeah, she looks so good <laughs> i don't know I, like she like only her yeah. could pull it off like that i think <laughs> yeah exactly i mean i guess like it made me realize that as an adult we don't really get to have that many things that we get to enjoy so freely like this that that kids shows do and um, i'm curious if you if that's kind of the realm that you want to work in for this period of time that and then moving back into drama and theater and stuff like that or hey, balance between the two yeah i like being able to have a mix i mean if i get to hang out in you know on sets like this a lot of the time that that'll make me happy that's a pretty good life but yeah i like being able to have a bit of a mixture as well like playing different characters and different sort of themes and different challenges as well which I think is really good it kind of stretches you and makes sure that you're sort of keeping on your toes and being really like having integrity with the emotional journeys of characters and stuff as well I think having a mix is good I like a challenge so what's next for you after Planet Lulin? Uh, oh, well, there's two projects I'm part of that I, I don't think I'm actually allowed to really talk about but um, they're like yeah but they're very different one's a very cultural project that's that I'm waiting to hear back on and then there's another one which actually I don't know much about, but a friend of mine is doing it. So I'm just going to trust that he's not going to have me do something too crazy. <laughs> um, but yeah, so yeah, those are the two main things that I've kind of got going on at the moment. And I do regular like voiceover stuff. So that's, there's always something popping up with that. I imagine then, like we were talking about theatre and, and screen, voiceover is its whole different world as well. How, how do you navigate that? How do you build a character just your voice? Oh easier it's so much easier i love it it's um because you just you literally like you don't have to worry you can put your whole like body into it and like everything has to is like focused on the voice and it's so it's so fun like it feels like you can really amp up your performance to sort of be able for it to read if that makes sense i really enjoy it i really love it it's um you know you go and you it's a bit annoying not being able to eat too much or eat the right things before a voiceover because you I'm one of those people that if I eat certain things, my voice gets claggy or something. It's very odd. But, yeah, I really enjoy it. I think it's really fun and I love being able to explore different characters and different ways of using my voice, which I think is important. I mean, that's it. the thing is that you're talking about certain foods you eat and stuff like that. It's being in harmony with your own body and realising what things will do to it and that kind of stuff, which sounds so clinical yeah. but it is actually realizing that if i eat this this is going to happen yeah. um is that kind of like it's not something that i tend to talk to actors or filmmakers about all that much but i'm curious on the industry side of things is that something that people talk about often well, or don't eat this you're going to do this with um <laughs> like uh, at acting school we did we were trained in the still vocal method which i love i think it's really cool it looks at 
voice as like your voice box is a machine like you, you could look at it from an entirely physical point of view it's like this happens this happens you injure yourself if you do this like it's very straightforward and very clinical uh, but yeah they were always saying don't eat peanut butter or drink milk before doing voice stuff don't do this don't do that um yeah there's a i mean it's different for each actor i've met actors who could eat whatever they want and they sound amazing in voiceovers so i think it depends on how your vocal cords kind of respond to things yeah and yeah i think that's kind of the main thing there i mean i've heard of people like <laughs> etiquette stuff where like if you have to do a kissing scene with someone maybe don't have like a garlic pizza or something <laughs> so close to the scene be considerate yeah, yeah i mean i've had that before like i've had to be you know in close proximity with someone in a quite an intimate scene and they they had like a hell like garlic focaccia or something beforehand so i made sure i had something equally stinky so we were kind of on even par <laughs> they, uh, as far as food yeah. goes that's the only thing i can really think of i, I just find it so interesting because again the and it's probably more of a self-realization than anything else but the the machinations and how people within the industry talk about how, what the work that they do versus people outside of me looking in going well this is so fantastic what everybody's doing and and it's two completely different conversations. And of course, it's, you know, again, it's a very personal thing. It's something that I'm realizing lately that the conversations that creative people have are very different than what, you know, us critics have. Um, it is weird. Like, it's super weird because I'm a bit of a hybrid. Like I, I'm working in sort of, yeah, like it, like an editorial space and academic space as well as working as an actor. I think the way I talk about things is we it's probably very odd because it's kind of a mashup of the two because I'm I analyze everything but then I'm also super emotional about things and so I think I end up being a bit of a smoosh together kind of vibe when it comes to that and yeah I, I can definitely see the difference for sure like yeah the way creative people talk about stuff and the way you know people who are working on the outside is is a bit different for sure but yeah, it's weird. It's a weird thing to navigate because sometimes I'm like, should I be code switching? Because sometimes people don't know how to receive me and I'm like, what? I, I make sense. <laughs> I don't know. It's weird. You know, it, it's, it, it is part of what we do. As he's saying, like Australian creative people, and I'm sure it's the same internationally as well, but you've often got to have multiple different jobs. You've got to wear multiple different hats. You've got to carry different things. And it's that it's not just an identity thing. It's not just a work thing. It's it's what makes us who we are. It's a modern world and navigating that yeah. is very hard. Well, even culturally too. Like if I'm working in a, you know, uh, like I was working on the back eye with Rob Reed, who's one of the uh, witness performance people. And it was an entirely queer, no dudes in the room except, yeah, like, the odd person that might walk in kind of cast and that was such a freeing awesome environment and the way we all spoke and navigated that and had we had like you know the way we interacted was very different to how you know very straight white production might look like and then again you know all mob that that's a whole other level of communication there too that's really interesting and so I think yeah it's just, it's really nice getting to work with diverse people and getting a chance to yeah dif communicate differently I think that's the thing here is that there should be just diversity everywhere and then we can all talk in a diverse way. I think that works. I think that's a wonderful way of wrapping up as well because it's talking diversely and all this kind of stuff. It's It sounds, again, it sounds so clinical because it is kind of like this, there is this uh, this hot speak, I guess, 
I'm trying to find the right word. Mm, but, I know what you know, mean, it, yeah. it is almost like a hot button thing mm. of like going, we have to be diverse, and it's almost like it's a top down led yeah. thing. Oh, we need to tick these boxes, mm. but it doesn't have to be that way, right? It's not. It shouldn't be like a, a KPI or something. It should be just like. Exactly. Get a bunch of humans in, dude. Like, just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing when you get humans together. What happens? Know, right? You know, it's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Chris, I've really enjoyed being able to have a long yarn with you. It's been wonderful. Um, and again, I've really enjoyed, like, I've uh, spent the last week just reading your work and just oh, like, so nice. really enjoying. Yeah. You're a great writer. Oh, like, you. I know that's. Yeah, like you're probably already aware of that, but it's um it's wonderful to be able to oh. read somebody who's so keenly aware of stuff. I'm but... a bit hit and miss. <laughs> like you, you probably found that in some of my early work. <laughs> That's all right. We all get that. Okay. Yeah, exactly. I read some of my stuff from ten years ago, and I was like, "What Oof. on earth?" Yeah. Like, yeah, don't do that. No, I, I generally, I, I approach like writing very much the same as I approach acting is if someone like if the editor or the director is happy with it, then I'll leave it. It's like, yep, cool. Yep. Don't want to read my own stuff. Yeah. Don't want to do that. <laughs> but yeah, it's been wonderful to be able to see your creative journey and I'm excited to see where you go forward from here. Uh, and it's been a great chat. Yeah. Thank yeah, you so thanks much. For the I appreciate it. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Curb Podcast. To help keep The Curb independent, visit patreon.com forward slash thecurbau to show your support from as little as $1 a month. And to listen to other episodes and to read reviews, head over to thecurb.com.au. For now, we'll see you on the next one.